I, I feel bonded intimately somehow to Scotty just because I'm an engineering sort of a person. You cannot mix matter and antimatter cold. We'll go up in the biggest explosion since the last sun on these parts went Nova. <laughs> Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall, and today I'm sharing a conversation that I had with NASA JPL engineer Steve Collins. While I was visiting Caltech earlier this year, I took a day to spend at JPL. Now, during grad school, I'd periodically drive up the mountain to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to see fellow scientists in a tall building conspicuously adorned with a sign that read, Science. But while space exploration is mainly a scientific endeavor, Only a few hundred of JPL's over 6,000 employees are scientists. It takes a village to design, build, launch, and operate our robotic proxies in space. It takes people like Steve Collins, whom I met in another tall building, this one boldly titled Project formulation. Steve is a fantastic guy, a huge Trekkie, and an even bigger part of why our space program has been so successful over the past quarter century. Like his hero Scotty, Steve perhaps is best described as a miracle worker. We actually had a lot of fun trying to decide exactly what his job title was. Turns out he's done so many things for so many spacecraft that he doesn't quite know what to call himself anymore. But the thing that Steve does most often is help with attitude control. No, that's not about feeding hungry grad students to keep them happy, or about implanting emotion chips in sentient robots to give them feelings. Attitude is technical language for the orientation of a spacecraft in three-dimensional space, which is a very important thing when, say, you want to make sure you're headed in the right direction, or when you want to point an instrument at a specific target. Steve will tell you a lot more about that, but first, we're going to get to know his story a little bit more, how Star Trek influenced his career trajectory, and how he helped build a fictional spacecraft dear to his heart for a Caltech musical production. Ready? Thrusters on full. It's my pleasure to introduce you all to Steve Collins here at JPL. Steve is a senior engineer or something along those lines. He's been here for something like 25 years and uh, does everything related to spacecraft and how they fly and get places and do things there. So I first met Steve 
funny enough, on the soccer field because Steve has a number of passions outside of science and engineering. One of those is playing soccer. Mm -hmm. So we uh, did battle (laughs) several times on the Caltech soccer field. That's right. JPL Cosmics was was the team that I was on. Mm -hmm. And I played for Cambrian Explosion, the sort of half- geology and planetary science and half biology <laughs> team so yeah oh and there's a couple of physicists on there too i don't really know we're just a mix of, of everything but um so it was fun playing soccer against steve and his colleagues at jpl um that's how i first met him and and then later on i tried out for this musical in the caltech theater department called boldly go which was a star trek parody musical and lo and behold my soccer buddy was there too um i recognized him from his classic long hair <laughs> You're on Twitter, right? That's right. Uh, my Twitter handle is long hair NASA guy. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a pretty apt description. And so that's another arena in which we in which we bonded. And then when it came time for me to close out my career at Caltech and give my thesis defense, the first person I saw up in the Salvatore room, the the room where all the GPS students give their thesis defenses, was a Starfleet uniform clad (laughs) Steve Collins. Um, So that was really wonderful. It seems like I just had to wear the uh, uniform from the show. It was very appropriate. And so I'm I'm really happy to be here with Steve right now and um, talking to him about how he has got here to JPL and what he does as a senior engineer, as a a real life... um, Red shirt? <laughs> yeah, some combination of a, of a red shirt and a, um, let's see, would it be, uh, I've had a little bit of blue and a little bit of gold, I, I'd say, too, mm-hmm. in my time here. I guess if you could <clears throat> pick a role on a Starfleet ship that would most resemble the role that you play at JPL, what do you think you'd be doing? Um... It would be somewhere between, you know, and I'm an old Star Trek mostly person, but it would be somewhere between uh, Scotty, uh, Geordi LaForge, and Helmsman, you know, Sulu mm-hmm. stuff. Doing flight operations, the stuff I do is listening to what the navigators say and doing things with the spacecraft uh, that they ask for. So yeah. that feels to me like the helmsman position. Yeah, sort of like the, the ops officer up there in mm-hmm. the front of the bridge and handling all the systems for the starship and yep. listening to the orders from the captain and et cetera. Excellent. So, Steve, you've had a long and storied career here at JPL. How did you first get into space stuff? And what was your trajectory through through school? And how did you get here at JPL? I was interested in space stuff since a very early age. I guess my parents, you know, bought lots of Apollo-era books and, you know, play toys and stuff like that. And let's see, from there, I was always interested in science. Read a bit of science fiction as a kid, watched old Star Trek, studied physics in high school and was pretty jazzed by that. And so when time came to go to college, I looked for schools. I was also in high school, sort of got interested in theater. 
And so I looked for schools that had astronomy and physics and a theater department, which there's not a huge list of those, but uh, I ended up at UC Santa Cruz. And I did a bachelor's degree in, in theater and a bachelor's degree in physics. Oh, wow. I didn't know that you had a theater degree as well. I mean, it explains so much, and I'm not surprised, but I didn't know that about you. Yeah. It's, you were able to do a kind of a double major thing there where you complete all the requirements for both the majors. And, and so that's what I ended up doing. I worked for a bit in the motion picture business after I got out of school. Uh, my father was a cinematographer, and so I was around the movie business a lot. And then I decided that I wanted to get back into doing something that was more science and engineering related. I got a little job with a company in Southern California that did some software development, which was what they hired me for, but they also did some spacecraft engineering sort of work. I worked for them for seven years and slowly weaseled my way from doing software development stuff into doing more space-oriented things because I had the physics background to do that. And then uh, one day I saw an ad in the newspaper for a position at JPL on a Mars mission. And as things had worked out sort of magically, it looked a lot like my resume. Uh, <laughs> they were looking for somebody that knew about horizon sensors, knew about attitude estimation. And so I applied for that job and after a bit of anxious waiting, got hired by JPL and then went on to work a bunch of different space missions at JPL. Yeah, so for those of you who don't follow the space business that closely, JPL seems to be sending something to Mars every few years. So which was that first Mars mission that you applied to work on? Uh, it was called Mars Observer. And uh, the idea was to take a commercial communication satellite, uh, or actually not a communication satellite, but it was a, a weather satellite, and adapt it for Mars and send it to Mars it was the first Mars mission after Viking, and NASA spent a whole lot of money on it, and it unfortunately had a problem just before we arrived at Mars and uh, the spacecraft was lost, which was a pretty um, sharp disappointment for those of us that worked on the team, but it was a powerful lesson to me as a young engineer about the care and complexity and risk of, of doing deep space missions. Mm -hmm. So can I ask, what was the problem from a technical standpoint? We don't really know for sure. The Failure Review Board came to the conclusion that it was a problem with the propulsion system, that uh, the long duration of the cruise out to Mars without using the propulsion system caused there to be problems that uh, resulted in a leak. But there were probably six or seven different possible causes that we couldn't distinguish because we didn't have enough telemetry to tell the difference. Yeah, space is hard, but 
here at JPL, um, nobody has a better track record of actually succeeding in landing things on Mars. And so we'll get to some of those missions in a bit. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you, Steve, since you are um, a big Star Trek fan, how did Star Trek influence your life and your trajectory towards space engineering? Well, in junior high school and, and even more so in high school, I was one of those guys that would wear a Star Trek uniform to school once in a while and um, hung out with a group of friends that were big old Star Trek fans. And uh, we used to make props and build things in the garage. And, you know, uh, we made a Super 8 movie that we called Ape Trek, which was sort of a hybrid of Planet of the Apes and Star <laughs> Trek. So, you know, Star Trek and living mentally, at least in the world of Star Trek and imagining how does the ship work and uh, what would it be like to fly one and how, what would the control panel really have to be like in order to control the spacecraft in three dimensions. And that stuff always sort of filled my, my brain. Absolutely. And, and now you do actual control of actual spacecraft. Um, but you also helped make the fictional controls for the Enterprise for our Boldly Go play. <laughs> I love telling people, you know, Caltech is a very small place and it doesn't have a true theater department like some of the larger universities, but it sources a bunch of effort and enthusiasm from people in the Caltech JPL community. And when it was time to actually build the enterprise, although Caltech doesn't have people who are professional or are seeking to get a degree in theater and, you know, have have all that experience, it does have the experience of actual engineers who would just love to have the chance to build the enterprise. And one of those was Steve Collins. So, Steve, how did you feel when you heard the news that Caltech was going to put on a Star Trek parody music? That, it, it, yeah. I was uh, I was shocked. I I guess I would say because it was a little you know outside of the normal sorts of things that we've done at Caltech Theater, which historically we've done a lot of Shakespeare and science-oriented plays. But um, so I was pretty excited about that and like, oh hey, Star Trek, you say? I know a lot about <laughs> Star Trek. So it was pretty fun to be involved with. Yeah, I came into the musical having done very little theater and definitely no musical theater in my life. But I just jumped at it because I love Star Trek and I needed to be a part of this production. And Steve, in addition to helping build the set, you also got to play a role in, in this musical. And so I'm just wondering, what was your initial intention for the, the, the kind of activities that you would play in this musical, the, the role that you would play? And then how did that morph and change over time? I mean, I wanted to be involved with it. At the time, I was super busy and was like, I can't probably take on a whole musical role and learn a bunch of songs and so forth. And I got asked, once the production was sort of already underway to do this uh, admiral role who spends a lot of time backstage in front of a video camera on Earth, supposedly, uh, giving orders to the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was great because it was a small role that I could kind of just plug into late in the production. But uh, 
once I started hearing about the production, what was going on, I was like, oh, I can help these guys make the bridge happen on in the set, you know, and I have some ideas about that. And uh, <laughs> they definitely did. needed help getting the set built. So, yeah, I remember going to the scene shop late at night after rehearsal to lend a hand with whatever you and the rest of the crew needed to be done. And that completely blew my mind. I will never see any theatrical production the same way again because I actually got to observe how much hard work and dedication it takes to just raise a set and to to make the enterprise happen with your own bare hands. And so, Steve, do you have any particularly fond memories of getting to put together the Enterprise, or were there any challenges that you didn't foresee that you had to overcome? I was super excited about playing Mike Akuda and, you know, building the uh, instrument panels and so forth. I I knew intimately how the old Star Trek panels were laid out and everything, but I realized that that probably, if you just duplicated that, it wasn't going to work in a theatrical setting because... The controls are very small. They're sort of, you know, half-inch size lights and stuff like that. And so I decided what I was going to do was make a scaled-up, kind of more theatrical version of the instrument panels. And I, you know, started making sketches and laying them out uh, in our sewing room. My wife has a great big sewing table that I... she allowed me to use to lay stuff out. And so that was super satisfying to see that come together and then, you know, figure out, oh, I've got some spare polycarbonate that I can use to make the panels and that'll be just like what they, you know, they did. So it was it was really fun. And then, you know, they very carefully picked the paint colors so they matched the old Star Trek paint colors. It, it was really fun. Um, One other technical challenge was I knew that the doors to the bridge were going to be a thing, having read many, many years ago in the making of Star Trek that they had two grips that would open the doors whenever anyone entered. I'm like, we need to do something about that because we probably won't have the people to manage every entrance and exit. So I built a mechanism that would open the doors simultaneously and we're on good little sliders and stuff. And that was very satisfying to have that work. Nice. Yeah, I remember just seeing your eyes light up when you got some LEDs to work for the control panels. And you're like, finally, it's working. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it was just like watching a little kid at Christmas or something like that. Just your dream was coming true. You were building the Enterprise. Um, Another really extremely technical but brilliantly executed set was the engineering section with the warp core. Mm -hmm. Were you involved with building the warp core? Only peripherally. I think we borrowed or rented or promoted from someone this great projection effect Mm -hmm. that somebody came up with the idea, you know, to project that on the back of a curving piece of lucite. And it made this just amazing warp core effect yeah. uh, visually. And the first time we saw that in the scene shop, we were like, oh, man, this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah. And then the challenge was to figure out how do we get this thing on and off stage? And <laughs> is this really going to work from, you know, in order to have a 
the scene changes be fast enough. Right, and it's a tight space, uh, Ramo Auditorium. It's it's not a big area. So. It, it doesn't have huge backstage area that you can roll stuff on and off. It's not very deep. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so going from engineering the Enterprise for the Boldly Go musical to engineering real-life spacecraft that are up there, um, Steve, what are some of the highlights of your career, do you think, in terms of the missions that you've played a part? Thinking back, of course, the landings of Curiosity and Spirit and Opportunity were super memorable. Uh, I worked on a project called Deep Impact that did a flyby of a comet where we shot a little missile at the comet and hit the comet and causing a, a big plume of material to come off so that we could study how strong is the surface of a comet. And having that work was super satisfying. I, I feel like I have a whole catalog of different uh, comet and asteroid flybys that uh, were amazing days. Mm-hmm. So um, what exactly was your role in the comet mission? Were you designing the projectile or deciding when to launch it and at which part of the comet you should launch it at? Mm-hmm. As part of the attitude control team, the stuff that I am normally responsible for is designing the attitudes that the spacecraft is going to be at. Uh, I was part of designing the slew that we do to turn the spacecraft to track the comet when we fly by. Making corrections to the trajectory is a super important part of the stuff that the attitude control system does. So on many of the flight missions that I've worked on, I build the ground tools that we use to do that, make the trajectory corrections. Typically what happens is the navigation team gives the attitude control team a request for a delta V. They say we want three meters per second in this inertial direction. And then the attitude control team goes and figures out how to do that with the spacecraft. And so the software, ground software that we use to do that and the commanding that we send to the spacecraft to do that is the sort of work that I do. Wow. It's like you really are... Scotty, but it's as if Scotty was doing his job in engineering, but then also went up to the bridge and pressed the buttons to actually fly it in a certain way. So Mm -hmm. you're you're really that blend of an engineer and the helmsman of the ship. Right. And typically we have to model how the propulsion system works and how the spacecraft turns, how long it takes to execute a maneuver. There are various safety parameters that we set to make sure that the spacecraft can't fire the thrusters for longer than we want it to. And we have to set those so that that we get the delta V that we want from the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. So I gather that flying a spacecraft and making sure that its um, attitude is correct so that it's always pointing in the right direction relative to a comet is slightly different from, say, landing a spacecraft on Mars. So what are the main challenges on your end as a flight controller for landing something on another world? So for, for example, the Curiosity mission, we did four or five trajectory corrections on the way to Mars. That's pretty typical for a Mars trajectory. And so I was responsible for taking the navigator's request for those trajectory corrections, each of which 
moves us a little bit more perfectly to where we want to enter Mars atmosphere. I was responsible for taking their requests for Delta V and doing them with the spacecraft and building the software that we use to do that. And then in order to land safely on Mars, the way Curiosity works is we tell the spacecraft very accurately where it is and what its velocity is and its orientation at the top of Mars's atmosphere. And then once it's been initialized with that information, it uses gyroscopes to control the entry as it flies down and target a particular landing site that we want to land at. And that process of telling the spacecraft exactly what its orientation is and its position and velocity is super important because otherwise we don't land in the right place. And because it takes a certain amount of time for signals to travel from Earth to the spacecraft that's near Mars and back, um, there's this very famous seven minutes of terror that occurred where the last little bit of the spacecraft's entry and descent was out of your control, right? You had you, all of these signals and adjustments that you were making um, at a certain point you couldn't make anymore. Uh -huh. um, and I remember watching the seven minutes of terror over the summer at my parents' house. This was the summer between college and entering grad school for me. And I was just like hopping up and down on the bed being like, oh my gosh, is it going to happen? Is it going to work? What did you do during the seven minutes of terror? Uh, you basically cross your fingers and hope that it's all going to work. <laughs> um, because, you know, we for the last several days are pretty much hands-off with the spacecraft. We've got it lined up. We have timed sequences on board that are going to do everything that is necessary. And the flight team is basically monitoring the spacecraft to make sure that nothing unexpected happens. No problems show up that we can do something about. So you're pretty much hands-off. You're watching all this happen. I, I feel this way personally, and I've talked with other people that feel the same way, in each of our respective areas of expertise, attitude control for me, I feel like everything's in good shape. I know how everything's going to work, and I have high confidence that we've done everything we need to do and it's going to work. But I'm not quite as sure about other people's areas, so I worry more about, like, did the navigators do their thing right? Is the telecom system going to work the way it's supposed to? What about the engines on the descent stage? Are those going to really light up when they're supposed to? So I worry about other people's stuff, which I don't know very much about. <laughs> right. uh, and I worry less about the things that I've spent the last couple of years doing deep dives and, you know, making sure is right. That definitely makes sense. And speaking of doing deep dives into calculations to make sure that everything's going to go as planned when the day comes. What are you working on presently for future missions? I am currently in development on a project called Psyche, which is a solar electric propulsion mission that's going to fly out to a very curious asteroid and go into orbit around it and take pictures of it and understand what the heck is going on with it. This asteroid is unique in the solar system in that it's a very large asteroid. 
one of the bigger ones in the solar system, that appears from radar observations to be made completely of metal. It has a very high radar albedo, which is how reflective it is in radar. And so they think it might be the core, the iron core of a planet that uh, has had all of the mantle, the dirt part, knocked off of the outside of it. And if that's what it is, it's super interesting because we won't ever be able to get at Earth's core, and it would tell us a lot about the early solar system development and evolution of the solar system. That's really awesome. Well, hopefully um, Psyche will fly one day, and when it does, I'll think about this conversation I had with you and say uh, a, a silent thank you to Steve Collins for making it all possible. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds, and it was a real pleasure to sit down and talk about science and engineering of real-life spacecraft. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Michael. That concludes episode 69 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory's Steve Collins. You can follow Steve on Twitter at LonghairNASAGuy, and you can follow me at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I. If you liked this show, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Next time, I'll bring you a retrospective of Star Trek Discovery's second season, featuring special guests Dr. Peter Gao and Dr. James T. Keen. So, you have until then, to get caught up on all of the twists and turns of Discovery. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you out there. A lot of people are very stuck up on, oh, life is this component and that component. Have to have liquid water. Liquid water, um, this organic compound, but not that one. I'm just like, we don't know that. Given given how complex that Mm -hmm. is, to think that OCAM is the only thing with sufficient intrinsic complexity to make self-replicating structures Mm -hmm. is got to be naive, right? right? But we're totally blind to that right now until we have a definition that's based on information theory somehow. Absolutely. Right now we're just saying, well, life is anything that crawls around. (laughs) Yeah, but this is why I love Star Trek, because it presents us with all sorts of different kinds of life forms. We've got gaseous life forms Mm -hmm. and crystalline life forms and energy beings. And it makes you really ask those questions. What actually is life? And Mm -hmm. how would we identify it if we saw it? Right. If you had to write a filter for it to keep it out of your email, <laughs> you know, yeah. what would that look like? Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to following your career as you <laughs> explore that stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, try to find us the answers. Yeah, I'll do my best, but I'll, I'll need some good spacecraft to do it. So <laughs> counting <Yeah>. on you. <laughs>